0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 209, Artemis Flight Directors. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We're gearing up for the first mission of NASA's Artemis program that will return humans to the moon in a sustainable way. Step one is the testing and verification of the SLS, or Space Launch System rocket, and the Orion spacecraft. The mission? Artemis 1. We've discussed the mission objectives and mission profile before on this podcast, notably on episode 180 with Artemis mission manager, Mike Serafin. Today, we'll be diving deeper into the operations of this mission profile. Joining us are two key flight directors for the Artemis 1 mission. We have Rick LeBrode, lead Artemis 1 flight director, and Judd Freeling, Artemis 1 ascent and entry flight director. Together, the duo walks us through the Artemis mission from the perspective of sitting in mission control Houston. How have they prepared? What decisions are they making? What are the critical moments? So let's dive deep into the operations of a new era inside Mission Control on a journey to the moon. Enjoy.
1: T-minus five seconds counting.
2: Mark. Mark. There she goes. We have a podcast.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for an on-camera version of Houston. We have a podcast. We're going to be talking with flight directors Rick Lebrode and Judd Freeling today about what it's like in mission control for an Artemis mission, specifically for Artemis 1. Gentlemen, thanks for coming today.
1: Thanks for having me. Pleasure. It.
0: Cool. Awesome. Let's uh let's get right into it. I wanted to talk uh mainly about the Artemis mission. We're going to dive into the operations inside mission control, but first I want to understand a little bit more about you, your history and what got you into the, this position. Rick, we'll start with you. I know you have a lot of experience with Shuttle uh, and some other stuff as well.
3: Yeah, well I started uh, actually this end of this month uh, it'll be 36 years. I've been working oh in mission control. Gosh. I started as a shuttle flight direct uh, flight controller in the instrumentation and communications officer position. Uh, we have that same position in, in the Artemis program now. Cool. Um, and it was basically a the com guy, so responsible for the all the communications with the shuttle. It's the audio, the telemetry, the commands, and video. Um, so I did that for 13 years. Uh, I was a contractor, and then um, I was just at the right spot at the right place in my career at the right time. Uh, and they, um, they opened up selections to flight directors to contractors. So I applied and, uh, I was selected as the first contractor flight director. Uh, when I, when I joined the office and I became a civil servant, uh, and when my class had, um, had four in it and two of us went ISS, two of us went, uh, two of them went, um, shuttle. So I started off on the ISS side. Okay. And I did, uh, the, about the first half of the assembly sequence as a as a ISS flight director, and then i then I uh, transferred over and was certified as a shuttle flight director and uh, did the last uh, half of the of the assembly sequence on the shuttle side. and And because I was considered one of the more veteran uh, flight directors in the office, I was able to uh, I worked the last three shuttle flights.
0: Very cool. very cool. From the shuttle end, Right. Okay. Very right. cool. So, how does that? How does that time? Um, you look back on it now, working with International Space Station. Look, working with shuttle. What are some of the things you're? Yeah, from that? it
3: was it was great. I mean, uh, just becoming a flight director is an amazing experience to yeah. start with, um, but uh, and then going ISS and I, and I started in, in ninety eight, so it was just before we started the assembly sequence for the International Space Station, and uh, I was fortunate the when we launched the Expedition One crew. Um, I was actually the flight director resident in in Moscow, in in the the control center in in Moscow. So uh, that just it was a, it was a so it was a completely different culture, um, but it was really enlightening to see how the how um, how the uh, the Russian flight control team operates. It's you know we're very similar, and 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 you know it's it's a technical job, and. Communications are paramount, so uh, in that regard, they uh, they are very similar to what we do. Uh, and uh, but the culture was is very different than anything I experienced before. So I really really enjoyed that part of it. Uh, so,
0: but that's a big part of especially being an international space station flight controller, right? Is you're not it's not just a it's not a one mission control kind of thing. This is a, it's called an international space station for a right,
3: reason. Right. Yeah. It's a challenge, right? There's challenges that come with it. There's pros and cons, like everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, they bring a lot to the table. They had a lot of experience uh, in space station, in stations, right, with their, their mirror space station, mm-hmm. um, and uh, their experience really uh, they brought a lot to the table. Um, and we do things differently, but uh, we, we it was just great to have each other to lean on. So it was it was really a good experience. At what
0: point did they call on you to say, "Hey, Rick, we'd like you we'd like you to start working on Artemis now"?
3: Uh, was, and that was pretty good too. So it was towards the end of the it was so it was probably two thousand eight. Uh, so it was actually constellation then. Wow. Right? Yeah. So Aries and Orion was still there, um, but uh, we had an individual in our office that was Prime, and and uh, he was he was he'd been a flight director for a while. So they wanted to give someone else uh, offload. He was it was getting really busy. So mm-hmm. they wanted to offload some of his work, and they asked me to 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 help him out. So I started doing that, and then uh, he left the office, so I became Prime, and then it was shortly after that that uh, constellation was canceled, but Orion survived, and then they came the Artemis program and. So I kind of, I've been involved ever since. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's... With different forms of what is a moon mission or right. exploration. Oh, yeah. 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 So I've seen it all. It's, Very cool. Yeah. It's been really neat. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to get into uh, a
0: lot of, uh, you know, what goes behind that, what you have been planning since 2008 when it comes yeah. to a moon mission. We'll get into that. John, I want to learn about your experience uh, um, that led you to this, uh, this Artemis role.
1: Sure. Uh, so I uh, have... Started actually a year before Rick got selected as a flight director. Oh. Uh, so
0: As a flight controller?
1: I was a flight controller okay. is where I started. Uh, I I started in the International Space Station, so I was a flight controller. I did uh, the command and data handling uh, p- portions, you know, all the onboard computers. Uh, I uh, We put a program together to kind of do multiple positions. I, I did that where not only did I... Uh, you know, watch over the computers of the space station, but also the attitude control uh, determination system, and also the com system of the of the station. Uh, I did that for about seven years or so in the station. Then I uh, I, I uh, had an opportunity to become a civil servant uh, to work on the shuttle side. So I was a shuttle flight controller uh, in the DPS area, the data processing system. So it's basically the the the, the computers on the shuttle network, so uh, I got to be um, an NASA entry uh, flight controller for, for shuttle and the DPS officer. Uh, so I did that uh, a few years, even got to work the last uh, missions uh, as shuttle was retiring. Uh, and, uh, and after uh, the shuttle retired is when I got selected to be a flight director. Uh, so uh, that was 2011, and uh, I've been a flight director for uh, Space Station ever since.
0: Very cool. Now, what? How do you compare those two roles for those that might not be familiar? Is you, you were a flight controller for a long time. Now you become a flight director. So, what are the responsibilities that you assume?
1: Yeah, you know the um, when you're a flight controller, really, what you're you're focused specifically on the system that you're um, you're controlling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know when I was in charge of the computers, and so I had a real detailed knowledge of all the computer systems. Uh, and 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 how failures might manifest, you know how, uh, you know what how they kind of kind of how they fit in with with the other systems. Um, but uh, as a flight director, you're really uh, looking at all of the systems and how they integrate together, and uh, you're really more on track with how you can use those systems. To perform your mission, right, hmm. and how how you can uh, bring the team together. What are the mission objectives, uh, and 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 know know a little about a, a little bit about a lot. <laughs>
0: um, now you have to do it for Artemis. So when did you get the call that says, "Hey, we want you to move away from from station and start doing more moon missions"?
1: Yeah. So so I had uh, completed a stint as a increment lead flight director for the station, um, and was starting to to get other lead assignments. So I'd had a couple of you know uh, spacewalks that I led and and cargo missions, cargo vehicle missions that I led. and and uh, uh, they were looking for, well, we we have an area where you know we need we need you to provide some help to uh, our ass and entry flight director at the time, Tony Sakachi. Uh, and uh, and so I became his backup uh, and and uh, started learning from him, you know, mm. kind of, what is this Artemis One mission all about? You know, and, and that was really in the development phase when, when we were really uh, trying to 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 psych out all the mission rules, all the how are we going to, um, you know, put this whole thing together? What are the limitations of the rockets and what's the limitation of the capsule? Those kinds of things. Um, not too long after that, I think it was maybe a year or so after after I was, uh, you know, Tony's backup. He reti- retired. Oh. And uh, and so then I was uh, a little bit out of, of a field promotion <laughs> <laughs> filled
0: in perfect right yeah. Um- it sound, You you mentioned lead, you were lead increment, lead for, for spacewalks, for cargo missions. Sounds like that's a little bit different. As a flight director, you're the lead in the room, but now it sounds like there's a little bit more that goes to being a lead for a certain part of what is the International Space Station missions. What goes into being a lead?
1: Yeah, so, so just like Rick is the lead for Artemis One, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we have leads for various dynamic missions in, in the space station as well, right? So, so things that take a little bit more planning and a little bit more coordination than just your average day to day life on the station, right? So uh, so we assign leads to those a little bit more dynamic phases. So spacewalks is a, is a really good example. There's a lot of intricate uh, planning and, and detailed, mm. you know coordination among the different team members that that you really need somebody to to kind of uh, you know, honcho and 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 help pull together and and, and lead. And so that's what we assign that. So, Cargo Missions is another great example. You know, there's multiple different teams uh, from multiple centers, uh, you know, that we need to make sure that we're all, um, you know, looking at the same sheet of music, Got essentially. It. So,
0: so, Rick, from your lead position of Artemis, what responsibilities, aside from sitting in mission control and actually being the flight director for, you know, whatever your shift is, what are the lead responsibilities that you're
3: helping out with? Yeah, I think... Um, and this goes for any lead, uh, any lead role, whether it be for an increment, an ISS or a cargo mission or Artemis, is the lead is is really ultimately responsible for building the mission and then executing it. And that's that's you interface mm. with the programs with the ESD, the exploration system division, at a headquarters. They provide us the mission objectives, the mission priorities that they want us to go and accomplish. And then we take those. We build a plan, then we train to that plan, and then we go and execute that plan. So uh, it, and it's a constant back and forth. Uh, so the lead is, is the point person, really, that's interfacing with the up and out, and then uh, conveys it down and in, and works with the various piece parts uh, to build that plan, and then go and train it, and then execute it. So essentially, it, it sounds like it's like a high level plan first. Like the the
0: goal is we want to put you know human boots on the moon. That's that's what we want to do, and you're saying here's how we get there from an operational perspective. Yeah. Here's what we need to accomplish. Here's what we need to verify to get to
3: that goal. Yeah, they, they rely on us to actually put together the mission to achieve their their uh, their mission objectives.
0: That's it, okay. Now let's dive into mission control. So what do you do? So there's a lot of different pieces to this. This is specifically about when it comes to an Artemis mission, what are you doing in mission control? So, so the grander picture, Judd, I'll, I'll go to you. The grander picture when it comes to an Artemis mission, what is the responsibility, what is the purpose of mission control?
1: Uh, essentially to um, be responsible for all of the execution uh, of that mission, that particular mission. So mm. whether that be uh, you know uplinking plans to do burns, whether that be uh, you know coordinating all the communication requirements, things like that, uh, that's essentially what Mission Control does is it controls the vehicle. Uh, and so, so we, we do that uh, a number of different ways. We 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 talked about a little bit. Uh, you know, being a flight controller versus a flight director. You know, uh, we divide the vehicle up into different systems, and so each one of those systems. Uh, we represent with a flight controller, right? So one of those systems could be the the computer systems. One of them could be the communication systems. One of them could be the navigation systems. One of them eventually will be the environmental systems when we when we put humans on 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 Artemis. Mm-hmm. Um, thermal systems, and so so we look to to each one of those flight controllers to uh, advise us on hey, what's going on with that system? You know, how best can we um, uh, you know complete our mission objectives based on conditions that we we've encountered
0: got it now rick this th- taking all, everything that judge just said for artemis 1 what is that mission that you guys are controlling what is artemis 1
3: yeah so the biggest thing with artemis 1 our, our primary objective really is to to test the vehicle validate its capability before we put the astronauts on it on artemis 2 hmm. so we have uh, we're building and we're still doing it right now uh, we're building the timeline that's um, going to include uh, just, just operating the systems to to understand how they're going to perform in in the cislunar environment or during acid and entry for Judd's team. Um, you know They've done testing, uh, so we have a, a feel for how the system's going to operate. Testing at Plumbrook, where they do a thermal vacuum, they bring it all the way down to vacuum, they heat it, they cool it. Um, and so we see how the systems responded in the test, but it's a different environment when you get... When you leave low Earth orbit and you're heading to the Moon, so uh, we're building a, a, a timeline, a mission plan, a flight plan that's gonna just gonna just test all the various systems and each of the disciplines that Judd spoke of. They are responsible for their 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 uh, their systems and mm-hmm. operating it and doing these de- we call them detailed flight test objectives or flight test objectives, um, operating the system to see how it's gonna operate, how it's gonna function, and um, and 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 just we're following the timeline now a big piece about the mission control also is when things don't go as planned for whatever reason we run into something we didn't expect uh, then we have to replan we re-timeline we may move hey that didn't turn out the way we planned it but we understand or we got to look at the data we understand so let's try it again and so the team has to rebuild the plan that we spent months building mm-hmm. and now we got to replan it so uh, there's there's execution shifts there's replan shifts and so uh, it just it continues 24 hours seven. We're just working on executing the mission and and then uh, updating the flight plan to, to uh, as necessary to get all those mission objectives accomplished.
0: That's it. So um, when it comes to Judd, like all those things that are coming in, what like that are that are monitoring really? Let's just let's just say like the avionics position. All the data is coming in, and they say, "Oh, this is not what it's supposed to be." Because I know what it's supposed to be at this. So this is where those replans. This is where those those different. Um, operations come in that says, you know, this is how we're going to deal with this scenario.
1: Yeah. So, so in in your example, avionics person says, hey, I've got a computer that's throwing me a piece of information that that's not right, or or you know, forbid that that the computer one of the computers has failed, mm-hmm. you know, completely. Um, yeah, so they'll say, hey, these are the things that we can do with it, you know, to try to troubleshoot. Um, you know, these these are the the capabilities that we have lost. These are the capabilities that we still have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so then you put that together with, well, what are the, the 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 forward objectives that we have for the vehicle, you know, coming up? You know, are they still compatible? Are we going to have to move those down the, you know down the line a little bit further? Uh, until we, you know, tr- completely troubleshoot what the problem is that you had in this particular system.
0: So, uh, when it comes in the room, the flight director—it sounds like—is the person that's really absorbing all the information from that avionics guy mm-hmm. from you know, wherever ground control, make sure all the satellites are working, make sure you got the the systems in mission control. You're the one absorbing all of that information. Give us a lay of the land. So it sounds like it sounds like if I were to look at a picture of mission control, you guys have rows of different flight controllers. You're in the back. You're listening to all this information. You're looking at a lot of data. You know, what's what's sort of the lay of the land when it comes to, um, you know, mission control? Is it just the one room of people? What's what's happening in there?
1: Yeah. So, so you know, for each one of those systems, so systems flight controllers that that represent a system on the vehicle, uh, they they have multiple support you know people that they can call upon. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll 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 usually have a back room, you know, another person that's really in the down and in you know detailed part. Um, of of the system, whereas uh, the flight controller out in the front room, uh, they're more they they absolutely have that knowledge, but they're also looking to kind of integrate and and try to try to understand how they're going to impact the other systems. Hmm. In addition to the backroom support that they have, uh, you you have uh, mission evaluation. You have engineers that have worked on. Uh, the, the vehicle have built, in many cases built the vehicle uh, and so you can reach back and, and draw upon their experience uh, to, to try and troubleshoot something that maybe you haven't seen before or try to understand if, you know, well, did we expect this or, or, or was, was this a feature of the, of the vehicle. So you have the flight
0: controllers. They have their own support networks. You got some engineering support. And if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, all of that feeds up to the flight director. Right. Now the flight director, do they have the ultimate authority over the mission?
3: Absolutely. You know, if everything goes as planned, we don't have to really, our job's very easy. We just let the, the, the team execute the timeline and get the data and and it's a great mission, hmm. but that's that's not very likely. So when things don't go as planned, then they look to the flight director to um, to, to weigh the options. You know, we understand the priorities that have been given to us from either the the, the programs or ESD, and then we uh, we weigh the options based on inputs from the flight control team, their MIPsers, the engineering team. Uh, program provides comments and mm-hmm. and. We ultimately have the responsibility to make a decision as to how to proceed from here. What is our what's our next step?
0: Okay. So they
3: so and it's
0: kind of like their advisors. The flight controllers are, are sort of advisors to you, and you say, Hey, hey, Judd, uh, this is this is happening. What should we do? Um, and you're the one that has to make that ultimate decision. And that's the culture. The culture is is a very hierarchical. Yeah. It's very leadership. If you say that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing.
1: Yep.
3: Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, over the years, you know, and and the, and the culture you mentioned. We've developed an, an incredible relationship across the... It's a family, so mm. there's a trust factor that has been developed over the several years that we've been working together on this mission. You know, uh, it's a team effort to build the timeline, and, and then we go and train it, and we've been through all these scenarios that the training team has thrown at us, all these failures, and, and, and you learn uh, how each other, each other works and so uh, it's just amazing how how it becomes a cohesive team and how, how it it becomes easy i mean the hard part is you know when when you get two things that are just equal how do, how do you decide which way you want to go and that's where the flight directors you know come in and, and you know through experience through you know gut feeling sometimes you know and, and through discussion amongst the team here we we, we talk amongst ourselves and try to Figure out weigh the options and and uh, but it, it's 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 really the team effort that that really helps us drive the you know drive the decisions.
0: That trust factor seems super important too because you have to rely. You, these are your advisors. They're they're making recommendations yeah. to you. You're you're the one that has to say this is what that is and then they have to go execute it. But it has to go back to that training that you said. So there's there's this training. So Judd, what are you guys doing to train to prepare all the different team members so that you can in when the moment comes trust them.
1: Yeah, so I mean, back to the, the back to the first point, though. Too, I, you know, it's not not as if all situations are like that, where mm. where we, you know, we always have to, you know, kind of figure out what to do. We try to write a, a lot of those things down before the mission, right? We try to write down, you know, what are the scenarios we think of. Let, let's let's say we we lose this one piece of equipment. Can we continue on the mission? And we write those down in what are called flight rules, and those flight rules are are. Pretty much a contract with uh, the the enterprise, the programs that say, "Hey, for for these types of scenarios, we've kind of prethought those out uh, beforehand, and and so we all agree this is the the avenue we're going to take." Right? Mm. It's when we're outside of those kind of prethought out things is when you know what what Rick's talking about a little bit there is is that we you know. We, we talk about options, we talk about you know, is there something that's in line with the philosophy of our mission rules? And so to your point on on training, what we do is in training is we we present the flight controllers and the team with scenarios that are maybe right on the edge of, you know, they're not exactly uh, what the, the flight rules would say we would do. They're kind of in a little bit of a gray area. and mm-hmm. so they push the boundaries, right. So that helps uh, you know our controllers, be more of a methodical thinkers and, 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 and talk about, you know, what's the methodology. You know, we have a rule, we have a mission rule that says we're going to do this X, but I mean, what happens if it's not exactly that, you know, that, Exact, you know, way of, of uh, that that the failure presents itself. You mm-hmm. know, what's really the intent, and that's 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 really what we're trying to teach when we we do these simulations, right? Is is how do you not only communicate really effectively with not only your flight director, the the rest of the team, but also how do you convey the intent of what previous mission rules have told you 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 you, you should you should be after? How do you how do you um, Convey that in a, a precise, concise, uh, methodical manner. Ma- so
0: it's not only understanding the vehicle and understanding the operations, and you don't, you know, it's, it goes to, to your point, it goes beyond understanding just, you know, w- what happens in a normal scenario. You have these rules that are helping to guide your decisions and make the recommendations all thought out ahead of time. That's awesome. But really, what the training does is it helps you to think about that flight rule? what is? How should I interpret that? Because it's not exactly within those parameters. So how can I interpret that? How can I make rec- make recommendations? But it sounds like communication is a huge piece of it huge. too. Um, not only being able to you know, digest the information, but to calmly and correctly assess and deliver that information to you, the flight director.
3: Yeah. When we evaluate uh a flight controller to be certified to operate uh, their console for whatever specific phase of the mission. That is the first, t- the first item that we evaluate is communication skills. Because hmm. without that, then they they can't work as a team. They can't. They could can be the smartest person in the room, smartest person on the on the, on on of that system. And if they can't articulate that to the flight director, to other team members, their own team members. Uh, then it it just, it it won't work. It just won't work. Mm -hmm. So that communications is is paramount.
0: That is huge. Okay, let's get into the Artemis mission. So we're going around the room, we're looking at all the different roles that have to contribute advice to you, the flight director, Judd, what are those? What are those roles? What are the in the room with you? What What are the different uh, flight control positions?
1: Yeah, so we start off uh, in the ascent phase, and we have a little bit more uh, flight controllers in the ascent phase than we do. Then, That's right. It's within, not just in the room. It's right because we have a whole different other vehicle, right? We have actually two other vehicles mm-hmm. uh, with us. So we've got a booster. Um, that that uh, that takes us up and and uh, not only the SLS core stage, uh, uh, space launch system core stage, but we also have uh, a second stage, which is the uh, uh, interim uh, control propulsion module, the ICPS. Uh, and so I, ha- I have a flight controller that represents the booster, right? You know, and, and really, what's the booster. It's that first and second stage. Mm-hmm. So there's a booster flight controller, and he he knows all about all of the, you know, the the cryogenics, the valves, the You know engine performance—that's supposed to happen with all of the engines. Uh, But then I also have a control position who's really in charge of understanding how does that rocket—not only the core stage and the ICPS—how is that supposed to be controlled? You know what are the the uh, uh, you know guidance, navigation, control inputs and outputs uh, for the for the rockets, uh, both both the first stage and second stage. Uh, So in addition to that, I've got um, you know. Folks that are responsible for looking at the capsule, so the Orion capsule, mm. you know, making sure that, that the systems are good on on the Orion capsule, because eventually the rocket's going to drop Orion off, you know, in in, in trans lunar orbit, and we want to make sure that 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 the, the capsule is still still looking good as far as we can tell um, when it goes heads towards the moon. Uh, so as part of the capsule uh, systems, we have uh, you know a guidance navigation control officer a GNC. Uh, looking to make sure that you know where you're at, and you know how to get to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a, a, a flight uh, trajectory officer, you know, a FIDO, flight dynamics officer, uh, and and they're really uh, in charge of well, where is that place that you need to go, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how how do we get there? You know, what's the what's the correct burn trajectory? Where do we need to burn at what what uh, what speed? Um, and then, then we've also got, um, you know, for the other systems part, we've got an electrical officer who is not only electrical officer, but also is in charge of the me- mechanics part of, of the Orion vehicle as well. So it's a kind of a dual role of, uh, you know, EPS, electrical power systems, and the mechanical, we call them an MPO, um, it's mechanical and power officer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so they're advising us on all the, the solar ray uh, inputs from the service module that's connected to the Orion space capsule. Uh, they're advising us on the mechanical systems, so the pyrotechnics that have to be fired uh, in order to, to make things move uh, in, in all, all manners. Uh, we also have uh, an environmental systems operator. Even though we don't have a full uh, life support system on Orion for Artemis one. Uh, we do have thermal control, and 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 we've got you know we've got somebody that needs to look after all of the thermal control aspects of that, and so that's the ECOM, you know, environmental control officer. Mm. Um, obviously, we've got a ground control, um, you know, person that's kind of in in, in charge of all of the uh, the the ground stations, uh, communicating, you know, when we when we need to uh, 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 get all the ground stations, you know, at, at the right times. Uh, we've got a communication officer, uh, INCO, which was what Rick was formerly uh, mm-hmm. a, a controller for uh, cool. back in the shuttle days. Uh, so they're in charge of all of the communications. Uh, and then we've got a, a CDH officer, a, a command and data handling officer, uh, who's in char- charge of the, the, uh, the avionics or the computers on board.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, Ricky, this makes me think about you were talking about people and the communication skills and everything because one thing that's going through my head is you have all these different – they sound very technical. You know, you're getting the flight dynamics. You're thinking about trajectories, guidance, navigation, control, all these different systems of Orion and the boosters. Um, there's got to be a reason why you can't just let data do the work, and then it just gets fed to you, and then you can
3: make decisions. Why do you have to have all these different people? Well, so we have a good idea through testing on how the systems are going to operate. But um, they're not going to operate exactly how they tested here on the 1G on on Earth. So uh, the team is there to monitor and then control the system to make sure it's operating the way it's designed to and the way we need it to in order to execute the mission and and achieve the objectives. you know, if, if things go perfectly, uh, there's an onboard sequencer that, that, in a lot of ways, will will um, you know, change the configuration of the systems as we go through the timeline. But uh, there's it's, it's very manual. Also, there's a lot of interaction that the team has to do. They have to be building commands continuously um, to configure the vehicle. Their subs- system both pre-burn in order to execute the burn and then post-burn get back into the coast configuration Mm -hmm. um and and so there's a lot of uh care and feeding that the team has to has to do um and that's one of the i don't want to say it was a challenge but one of the the differences that in working with the lockheed martin the prime contractor for orion is is their their expertise uh most of their experience base has been the um uh the uncrewed deep space probes, which were totally automated, right? Mm. Um, so when you put humans on board, there's a whole new aspect. And so we've had to work with each other and learn how each other works uh, you know, to get along because and, and, there's dramatic differences in the way we operate. So uh, the flight control team and mission control are really responsible for, for Making sure the, the system operates the way it's supposed to.
0: So, there's that, it it's, goes beyond the data that's just being delivered. It goes into the, it sounds like it's like the interpretation of that data. Each, each system is wildly intricate in its own way. And you said each of them have different support networks too that are thinking about even more intricate details. Oh, yeah. And so, you just need those levels of understanding to have that information be. So, ultimately, when it's delivered to you, the flight director, it is delivered by a human that a human has digested digested of all the information, thought about it. They've studied, they've, they've put in the work and now they they're the ones making the recommendation to you. You need that person. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's true in, in most systems, you know, um, uh, when you cross boundaries, whether it's, you know, it's an interface boundary, yeah. whether it's with, with hardware or with people, you know, the the greatest chance of you losing either drop in communication or to get communication garbled is those boundaries between two different systems or two different teams, right? And so so that's that part is really what we need a human in the loop to help us out with to like interpret, you know, what is what mm. is the you know the correct communication that needs to happen between these two things.
3: Yeah. A good example. Um, there's gonna be phases throughout the mission where uh, whenever we do a major burn, we have to position the solar arrays into a, a position that, that will support um, the loading from the actual burning of the engine, and then also uh, thermal from the thrusters that are fired. We wanna protect them. Um, and when we, when we go to these positions, we're no longer generating power or severely reduced power generation. So we have batteries on Orion that, that will then po- provide the systems, the battery, but it, depending on how long we're out of attitude, and uh, where those batteries are with respect to state of charge. Um, we may not be able to handle uh, the next worst failure, losing a battery. So we, ha- we may have to do wh- what would be called power downs or cross ties. And this- these flight controllers, the MPO officer, um, Mechanical and power officer, who's going to have to come to us with recommendations on on what should we do in order to configure the vehicle to ensure that we can successfully make it through this burn and achieve achieve ultimately achieve the objective. Because
0: because it's, it's not just about that next thing. That person is thinking about the step after that Absolutely. and making sure. Okay, what if I make this decision? How is that going to impact yeah. it downstream?
3: Yeah. yeah, we're really good about always thinking about the next worst failure and yeah. and putting ourselves in a configuration that will be able to support that.
0: So, um, Rick, earlier on, you mentioned, you know, what, what is what is the purpose? You know, what are we trying to accomplish for for Artemis One? And you said we have, you know, we've designed a mission profile for Artemis One that is going to help us to meet some objectives. So, tell us a little bit about that profile. What is what is the uh, the booster Orion? What is everything going to do to meet the objectives that you want to meet for this mission?
3: Yeah. Well. Uh, so there, it's two pieces. Um, let me start with. So we've done a lot of testing. There's a lot of analysis on how the systems are going to operate. What 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 thermally? What's their boundaries? You know. So the, the uh, engineering team have done a lot of analysis. So they they have a pretty good understanding. But the uh, without real data, there's um, a lot of margin in those analysis. And and hmm. the analysis really uh, they put constraints on how we operate the vehicle. So most of the time, as we're coasting to the to the moon, um, we're tail to sun. So we're putting the rear end of, of Orion towards the sun, and the, the solar rays are out parallel, and they're direct sunlight onto the onto the arrays, generating as much power as we can. Um, and if we were to leave that attitude, well, our rules right now, the NLS show, we can leave it for three hours at a time, and then when we come back, we have to be in attitude for ten hours to recover. Huh. Those are pretty significant constraints on if we wanted to do some some other mission objective. This mission, the data, we're going to go out of attitude for periods of time. We're going to see how the, the 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 systems respond. We're going to come back in at attitude. We're going to see how long it recovers. So after our mission, all that data is going to be used to update the engineer models. So the next time we fly this vehicle with the astronauts on board, um, we're gonna we're gonna. Um, there will be less conservatism in it, so it'll make it easier for us to be able to operate that vehicle. So that's 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 kind of the big yeah. picture part of it. Yeah. The other piece, so ascent obviously testing the rocket to make sure it can it can insert the vehicle and Orion into the right spot, um, and 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 it's it every mission has a different profile, so. Um, the, they're testing the, the performance of the of the rocket itself and the solid rocket boosters, and then the same thing with the upper stage. You know, how is it, it's going to be completely used completely different on Armish and Artemis One? We're it's going to do the translunar lunar injection, send us on the way to the moon but it's not gonna do that for Artemis two. It's gonna mm. put them in a, in a high lunar orbit where they can test the systems out for 24 to 36 hours, I think, before they actually commit to the moon. And it'll be the service module that will actually do the last burn, TLI burn, to get get Orion going to the moon. Ah. So. We're testing the systems to, to prove that they're capable of doing what we need them to do when we put the, when astronauts on there. And then um, Orion itself, uh, you know, when we go to the moon, we're going to be using all the, the big engines, the Ohms engine, which is the ones at the back end. That was actually a heritage shuttle. Engine that we used uh, on the shuttle that have been used uh, on Orion, and then it has the auxiliary thrusters. We're gonna; those are our, our main means of doing large translational burns or big burns essentially. Um, so we need to test those, the capability of those of those uh, systems, and then um, uh, and then on the way back. One of the, and then, um, before we get back, there's a there's a lot of pieces that uh, that need to, to need to operate. We have an optical nav system that is used to update the the uh, the onboard nav state in the event that we lost com permanent loss of com the the optical nav system actually could use be used to update the update the onboard state vector so that we could bring orion back successfully. Um, there's star trackers, there's um, the, all the thermal control system, we're going to be wringing out that system, testing that where's the edges of the box, you know, really getting that engineering data so we can update our models and, 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 and really understand how it works. And then one of the, one of the major pieces of, of the mission, one of the major objectives is to test the heat shield, mm. uh, coming back at lunar velocities to make sure that it uh, will support uh, keeping Orion Intact, and then uh, so the the astronauts could safely splash down the coast of California.
0: Perfect. So you are. This is definitely a mission to really. You said put it through the ringer to really ring out, test, push the limits of this of these vehicles. You really want to understand because you just. It sounds like you can't really do it on Earth. It sounds like this is something you have to test in space. All these different, the thrusters, you know, you can put it in a sim as many times as you want, but when you actually put it in space, what's it going to do? Turning the solar rays away from the sun, not something you want to do, you know, with humans on board, but let's test it out. Let's see if those limits are what we expect. You can only you can only test it in yeah. space. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to. And, right? and
1: you can only test it as an integrated vehicle, you know, so, yeah. so one of the first things that that they're going to test is going to do a modal test, you know, to, to kind of vibrate the Whole thing and see how everything shakes and make sure it doesn't shake itself to death, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, and so so you can only do that, um, you know, when you're in space uh, with the whole vehicle, right? And Without
0: putting crew in danger. Exactly. Test, it, test it now before exactly. you put the crew on board. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, right. and it's it's incremental steps too, right? I mean, you test this, you you kind of get the data that you need to anchor all your engineering models, you know, because. Their best guess is right now, and in, in and that's why Rick was ta- talking earlier about how how heavily constrained some of these things are. It's because from the engineering point of view, you just don't know how how much of fidelity you have on the on the models, mm-hmm. right? And so the way you anchor though is you get t- test data, mm-hmm. and 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 then you know all the way to the end. Where you know you're making sure that that whole capsule can come back, you know, do a mission, come back safely, you know, and 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 be intact, uh, so that you have high confidence that when you put humans and astronauts on board, you know that that they'll come back, you know, safely.
0: You mentioned earlier on, Rick, that. Um- it's it's a long day. the the launch day is a long day. So we're gonna let's jump there. Let's jump to launch day for Artemis One. Judd, you're on first, right? Yep. So what are some of the first things that you're looking at on launch day for Artemis One?
1: So you know we start off the day. Obviously, uh, you know the the launch team at Kennedy Space Center has has prepped the vehicle. Uh, they've they've put it together. It's taken them months and months and months to put the vehicle together. Uh, they've uh, loaded up all the fuel. On board, Uh, they've started to um, turn on all the systems, so every all of the all of the lights come on, all of the computers come on. uh, We start to get data, they start to get data. Um, Once they're ready and they've met all of their constraints, they'll launch the vehicle and then hand it immediately over to my team. Hmm. And of course. We'll be, you know, following along with them lockstep, but we're more of advisors, um, you know, when we're still on the ground. We're we're saying this is how, you know, if you had this failure here, this is how it would affect the, the mission going forward, mm. uh, you know. But we're not really the prime folks that that are gonna uh, save things or you know troubleshoot or things like that. Uh, but as soon as the the, the rocket's lit, then uh, then my team's in control. Hmm. Uh, we're we're making sure that uh, you know from the get go that we're doing the right thing that we're supposed to do. We we start that roll maneuver out uh, and and keep on uh, going towards uh, you know our our max dynamic pressure throttle bucket. Uh, you know once that's complete, that we're you know uh, uh, ejecting the the solid rocket boosters. You know they do their job after about two minutes and uh, then we continue on with just the core stage uh, engines. And uh, we'll follow that all the way up to MECO, main engine cutoff of those four major engines. Uh, and then the, uh, the ICPS plus the Orion service module and Orion capsule, uh, they will, they will uh, separate from the core stage. Core stage will fall back uh, to Earth uh, in, the, in, in the ocean. And ICPs and and above will continue on, and the ICPs then goes and uh, does a series of burns, and 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 before it does its first burn, which it's perigee raise maneuver. So perigee is the the closest approach to the to the Earth. Hmm. Um, when it does that um, burn, to before it does the burn to raise that that altitude at perigee, uh, we go ahead and deploy the solar arrays. So so. Up until that point, uh, the Orion spacecraft is is on batteries this this whole time through through the mission. So at about 16 ish, 17 minutes or so, we start to deploy the solar arrays and uh, make sure that they deploy first of all, and <laughs> then that we, then we can get them in a, in the proper, uh, you know, as Rick was alluding to, the proper angles uh, and and sweep uh, in order to do that first uh, perigee raise maneuver burn that's going to be done by the ICPS.
0: ICPS is the... It's the
1: Interim Control Propulsion Module, so it's the second stage. Second
0: stage,
1: Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. Uh, And so that second stage uh, burns PRM, uh, and we go through another series of, uh, you know, ICPS takes us through a bunch of uh, kind of roll maneuvers just kind of to make sure that the thermal uh, heating on all sides of the whole vehicle is is heated and cooled uh, equivalent. Uh, We... uh, we start to um, use our ammonia boiler, boiler systems on the on the Orion spacecraft. At that point uh, to start cooling the interior. So we've got a, a heat exchanger that exchanges um, ammonia on the outside with the uh, the coolant loop, which is a which is a, a glycol uh, type uh, 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 coolant on the inside, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, we make sure that we reject all the heat that all the avionics and all of the interior part of the Orion is, is and we make sure that that's working okay. and. Uh and then eventually, about an hour and a half or so uh, into the mission, we do uh, the translunar injection burn with ICPS, that second stage, and uh, hopefully that takes us uh, on our on our trajectory to the moon. There you go. Right. You
0: have to activate the spacecraft, check everything out, make sure it is good to go before yep. you get to that point. Uh, right. wh- at what point are you taking over, Rick?
3: Right after Orion separates, after the the, the upper stage does performs uh, translunar injection, okay. and then Orion pops off and does a separate that's we're going to do a quick handover right then, because okay. right after that, uh, uh, Judd mentioned the uh, modal survey. That's one of the first things we have mm-hmm. to do, um, and it's just a series of RCS reaction controlled thruster firings, and we have accelerometers, and they're doing video of watching how the how the solar rays are going to flap. I don't know if you have ever seen it, but there's some old video of a of a bridge, and I think it was in California, mm-hmm. that the winds came by and it hit a resonant frequency, and it basically destroyed itself. It was it the bridge that was sort mm-hmm. of yes, doing the sine wave yep, kind yeah, of maneuver? That, yes, it, I have seen that. The caused it to hit a resonant frequency that caused it to basically self-destruct. Uh. We're testing the onboard system to make sure the gains in the, uh, on the control systems are set such that that doesn't happen. Got it. So we're going to do that quick test. Until we do that test, we're limited on on how long of burns we can do. Our um, they can only be th- our ohms burn the big engine. It would ultimately is going to get us to go into the distant retrograde orbit. Uh, Thirty seconds, and that's not near long enough to do anything on our mission. So um, we mm. got we got to get a good uh, modal survey, and then also on my shift we will do the first. Um, they're called outbound trajectory correction. They're correction burns. They're small burns. But the very first one we're actually going to go. We're going to. It's going to be the ohms checkout um, burn. So we're going to burn that ohms engine for thirty seconds to make sure it's good to go for because the first time we use it actually is for the outbound powered flyby, and and that's setting us up to the distant retrograde orbit. And you want to make sure it works well. So it's going to test it there. Got it. So those are the primary things on flight day one. And then after that, we do a. Uh, we're. It's, it's just a. Series of a couple of days as we coast up to, up to the outbound trajectory flyby. We have a couple trajectory trajectory correction maneuvers. Um, we want to make sure we when we, we go by the moon, which by the way it's going to be around 60 miles off the surface of the moon. Close. Crazy. So we got to make sure we don't get too close, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what those those trajectory correction maneuvers are really important. Uh, targeting that outbound powered flyby, and then. Um, We'll burn that guy, and that'll take us up to uh, the distant retrograde uh, orbit where we're doing insertion. And depending on if we launch in, in November, it's it's uh, around 14 days. I think we're up in the in that orbit. It's either a half a lap or a lap and a half. So, Got it. And that's all. It depends on what time of the year we launch, and that's all to set up for lighting it at, at Splashdown for Judds and the recovery team. We want it to be lit so that the recovery forces can watch the... Watch the capsule come down. Watch shoots deploy. Just see how it how it functions, and then recover all the piece parts.
0: Lit meaning the sun is shining sun in the is Pacific.
3: Shining yeah. in the Pacific, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 off yeah. the coast yeah. of San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, off the yeah. coast it's of started. San Diego. There yeah. it is. So, and that burn happens at
3: the moon. It does
0: pretty much, yeah. yeah. Like okay. it's
1: like what six or seven days before. Yeah. Splashdown. So it starts when we actually depart. It's DRD, District
3: Retrograde Departure Burn, mm. which starts heading us back to the moon, and then ultimately. Uh, you know where the the shuttle used to have that deorbit burn. Our deorbit burn is actually happening as we go by the moon. On, and John's going to take that shift, so it uh, it targets the. Um, but when we leave, the DRO was actually sets up for when we're going to actually do that that return powered flyby. So before we we head back to Earth and talk about some of the things there, what are some of the
0: checkouts that are happening in the vicinity, the lunar vicinity? Uh,
3: you know, actually around the around the moon, there's we're. It's very similar to the things we're doing on the way there and on the way back. Oh, okay. The optical nav system checkout systems. Yeah. Um, we're, we have a series of payloads. Uh, we have a series of PAO events where we're we're doing um, uh, taking Earth and Moon shots as we as oh, we leave. All really closer. cool. Uh, one of the big things when we're in in the DRO is to look look for that um, that first moonrise. That shot. Is- Earthrise. 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 Yeah, yeah, Earthrise. yeah Earthrise. that's Earthrise. a big yes. one. Yeah. yeah. So that that is a big one. So uh, and again, it's all testing the systems. We're doing uh, different uh, mode of operations for the systems, like the radiators. We go to a, a a flow control versus speed control, which is just a different mode of operating it, just to see how it's gonna how it's gonna operate. Very cool. Yeah. So, when we get to recovery, Judd, mm-hmm. what are some of the key things
0: that you're going to be looking for? We already sp- we have spoilers with the heat shield. There's a couple of other things that you're going to be looking for. What are those key things?
1: Yeah, so so once we're way back at the moon and we do the the burn to get us out, you know we're looking for a very tight corridor uh, to for uh, entry interface. you know mm-hmm. um, you know it it all has to do with the geometry and 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 the speed and and everything you know if you're, you know, too shallow. You bore into the to the earth too much, and, the, and you burn up the heat shield too much. If you're too, uh, if you're if you're too, too shallow. No, sorry, too too shallow. Then you'll skip off. If you you go bore in too too hard, then you you know you you have too much heating on the on the thermal. It's like a charge. Goldilocks Right. Zone so you're, of you're trying yeah. to get right Pretty at much. the right part. Yeah. Uh, we're also trying to do uh, an objective where we get to a point where we do what's called a skip entry. We we do a we. We intentionally get at an angle where we skip a little bit, and then come right back in, and that's in order so we get like a double heating profile, so that we test ah. the the heat shield to make sure um, if we ever want to do that, you know, on future uh, crewed flights, that we have that capability to have a double thermal, uh, you know, uh, heat shield objective, so that mm. it gives us more flexibility in future missions to to. That have a, a different EI or quarter or EI constraints or entry interface constraints. Okay, and yeah. you're
0: doing that purposely for Artemis, Artemis one, one, just to test it, and then you won't do a skip entry unless. But now you know you. Now can we know we you, can. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. so so
1: maybe if that you know if the mission dictates it in, in the future, yes, you know, so we know we know that uh, that the heat shield can take it, and that's exactly yeah. what we're looking for, right? We're looking to right. see how does the heat shield perform, so that we know for future missions. Uh, you know how do we how do we um, uh, modify or or create those missions such that you know we take full advantage of the capability of the of, of the vehicle. Uh, so when uh, once we hit in entry interface, um, you know we're 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 pretty much um, along for the ride. It's really quick from there. It's about twenty minutes wow. uh, until we splash down from from entry interface. Obviously, we're looking to make sure that all of the systems come online. Uh, you know. We have uh, barrel alt- altimeters that tell us you know, what the what the altitude is because you need to deploy your 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 drogue chutes and your main chutes at certain altitudes and that's heavily reliant on what altitude, what pressure that the atmosphere is at that determines the altitude. Uh, and we have uh, GPS receivers that come on that also tell us that, not only tells us altitude in addition to what the barrel altimeters tell us, but also tells us where we're at, and so kind of mm-hmm. how how do we steer, how do we steer ourselves uh, into the wind. Uh, as we're coming in, right? Cool. Uh, and 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 so, so uh, we're we're making sure that all of those systems come online properly and and, and are able to you know meet the demands of the 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 uh, splashdown.
0: That is uh, quite a mission. There's a lot to that. Um, when you're looking at it and looking at what there's left to do to, to build up to this moment, what do you guys still have to work on from now, the time that we're recording this, to, to when we actually are ready to go on the launch pad for Artemis One? What's there le- left to do?
3: Probably the, the most uh, significant thing is to train the team and certify the team to be ready to execute the mission. Okay. Um, as we as we do that, though we're, we're we're refining our rules. Jed talked about the flight rules. Our contract with the programs and the enterprise. Um, we're learning. We're learning as, as they test the vehicle and they're uh, they're assembling it out at KSC. Them, we're and they're they're testing it. We're learning idiosyncrasies of it that may affect our rules on the way we're going to operate it. So um, we'll be we're training, certifying the team and we're making sure our products are, are ready to go. Those are the primary objectives I've done.
1: Yeah, and I would say in addition to that, so up to this point, um, the individual teams have trained together really well. Like So for instance, the flight control team in Houston, we've done a lot of simulations, and Rick talked about those uh, together just as a Houston team. Down at KSC, the launch you know the launch team has done a lot of training events for just that launch team. You know the 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 mission evaluation, the engineering guys, they've they've trained individually. So what we're really focusing on now is making sure all of those teams come together hmm. and function as a cohesive unit, right? Yeah. You know the the recovery team. So they know that we're all we're all on the same page, the launch you know team, we know. so so it so it basically becomes you know a seamless end-to-end mission that starts. You know, with the folks at uh, you know at Kennedy Space Center, you know, transitions over to us at at Johnson, and then back you know at that splashdown in San Diego uh, to to the folks at Kennedy, and and with the help of our our Navy friends, it all works
3: together. Yeah, that it all all we refer to those as as joint integrated simulations. And we're also taking advantage of a lot of the already the things they are already planned down at KSC, like uh, when they do a wet just rehearsal or uh, a pre-launch sim, Judd and his team will be on console just to start, continue to build these relationships, you know, in the flight environment. So mm. it, it really is uh, very important to a successful...
0: It's all coming scene. up real soon. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like you guys have a, a lot that you need to focus on, a lot to do, but when it comes down to it, we're doing a mission to the moon, around the moon. We're going to see Earth rise. We're going to see a lot of cool stuff. When you look at it, Rick, what are you looking forward to most?
3: Wow, it's, it's, that's a good question. Um, just the whole experience of le- of leaving low-Earth orbit. I've been yeah. doing this, as I said, 36 years, uh, and you know all of it's been low-Earth orbit until now. And uh, I was mentioning to Judd that... I'm every bit as excited about this mission as I was the first day I walked in the doors, coming out of college, you know, walking in the mission control for the first time. Uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of responsibility, so I'm, I'm gonna be really, really nervous. But, yeah. um, but just uh, the team is amazing. That uh, We've got so much support from across the, the globe, really. Uh, it's gonna be so exciting. I just, uh, yeah. yeah, it's gonna be hard to contain myself. Very cool. Judd, what about you?
1: I'm really looking forward to splashdown right off San Diego, and, and it's and it's not so much you know that it's the end of a mission; it's the beginning of a campaign, right? You know, That's it's a, in, it is the beginning of a campaign of uh, you know re-engaging that you know pushing the boundaries of human exploration to go to the to the moon and beyond to Mars. Beautiful,
0: and we'll end it right there, gentlemen. Thank you both so much for coming on Houston We Have a Podcast. What a cool discussion! Thank you. Oh,
1: our pleasure. Thank Thanks you for having us.
0: To space. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Houston We Have a Podcast, and you're looking forward to a new episode next Friday. But maybe one week is just too long for you. You can't get enough of that NASA story. Uh, so if you can't, check out NASA's Curious Universe podcast on your favorite podcast app. Here's a sneak peek of the kinds of stories that they feature.
2: I've been to Antarctica three times, and it's my absolute favorite place (laughs) on the planet. Antarctica is a very special place. You go and you fly into McMurdo, which is a station run by the National Science Foundation. It's kind of this little city of like a 1,000 people right on the coast. When you go into the deep field, you take these itty-bitty little planes. There's just five of us. They land. They never turn the engine off because they want to make sure that they can fly away again, right? So you don't want a plane to get stuck there. It's this mad rush to get all your gear off the plane as quickly as possible. And then the plane takes off and there you are with five people standing in this flat white nothing in every single direction. And it's like exhilarating and terrifying all at once. So then the first thing you have to do is, you know, make a fire so that you'll be safe. And then you start putting your tents up. The one thing that I do remember the most about being there is just, it's so quiet. I'll never, ever, you know, experience anything where there's just no noise. There's no wildlife. There's no planes. There's no cars. There's no people. It's just you and... You can almost hear your brain working. I mean, that's how quiet it is there.
0: If you like this clip and want to learn more about how NASA scientists are studying our home planet, you can check out NASA's Curious Universe on your favorite podcast app or at nasa.gov podcasts podcast. They've just released a new season full of adventures with NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other experts. Our universe is a wild and wonderful place. And in this show, NASA is your tour guide. Uh, so for this episode, the uh, Artemis flight directors, I really hope you enjoyed uh, listening to um, to Judd Freeling and Rick Lebrode today. Thanks for uh, sticking around. If you want to know more about the Artemis program, we've got a website for you, nasa.gov slash Artemis. And then, of course, you can check out some of our other podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcast. This episode, we actually recorded on video, so if you'd like to check out the video version of this podcast, it's the same conversation, really, but you get to actually see Rick and Judd, Uh, go to our episode webpage, and you can find a link there where you can watch our uh, video version of the podcast on YouTube. If you want to talk to us, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on July 6th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Catherine Hambleton, Rachel Kraft, Laura Rashawn, and Courtney Beasley. And of course, thanks again to Rick Lebrode and Judd Freeling for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.